teachers. We have changed our name to better reflect what this podcast is about, which I'm really excited about. I'm also really excited that this week we have Asaf Ronan as our guest. He is the author of Directing Improv, Show the Way by Getting Out of the Way. He's also taught in places like Canada, England, Norway, and over half the United States. I could talk to him all the time about improv. Really insightful. Um, The volume on this one might be a little weird. We had some audio issues, as you guys know. I do these uh, a lot of times, long distance, and sometimes we get not the best quality. But I, uh, I think it got cleaned up pretty well, and you'll get a lot out of it. So I hope you enjoy it. And thanks again so much to all of you for listening to The Improv Team. I uh, like to start off with asking, do you remember the first class you ever taught? Well, I, I remember, so I used to be part of a college improv group back in New York. And I remember faintly the first rehearsal that I ran. And I thought about it so much and putting out these notes. And looking back, I don't remember exactly what I did, but it, it, it feels like it was misguided. <laughs> It was like early notions of what improvisers need to focus on and things like that. Teaching, I do remember one rehearsal where I ran hosting, and I had the most basic ideas of what it meant to host a show, an improv show, because we were doing short form, so a lot of stuff like that. And uh, I remember running them through telling a joke or telling a story things like that. But once again, it's fuzzy, but it felt misguided. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so <laughs> that's uh, so great. Um, yeah, it's, I've had some people tell me, they're like, yeah, the first time I taught improv, I'd been, I took it and a week later, someone asked me to teach a class. <laughs> I love those stories. Like no one knows what they're doing in the beginning. Like, yeah. I kind of stumbled into it, and this was, oh gosh, 18 years ago at least. I've been doing improv for 26 years, and I don't know if this is a side effect of having done improv for so long, or if improv speaks as part of my brain, but my long-term memory sucks. My short-term memory is really good. <laughs> really good for improvising. I on top of information, but yeah, in the long term, like there are people that try to try to get me to recall a show I did like a month ago, and I was like, I can't, I can't. I I think also the more we do it, so like you know, for some people they remember all their shows because maybe they've only had ten shows, right? But the more you're doing it, and, and like. The more classes you've taught, the more students you've taught, it just gets so much further away that, um, you know, recalling it doesn't necessarily come as easily. Yeah. And I think also part of it is that the more you do it, the more you're looking at something bigger. Like I see patterns of things and I can't recall too many specifics, but it's like, oh, I've seen this student type before. I've encountered this experience, and I don't remember the specifics of the experience, 
but I recall the overall idea. Or, oh, that pitfall of trying to do that kind of scene. I, I recall all, all those uh, instances glommed together. Uh, and same for improv scenes that I personally have done that kind of glommed together. It's like Currently, what is, your imp- what is your philosophy on teaching improv currently? My philosophy on... So the latest thing that I've been developing, and I feel like I want to do a second edition of my book just to, to include this idea, is... Um, So I'm the education director at my theater, so I'm in charge of vetting all the teachers, and I have them as TAs first. And one of the first things that I tell them as TAs is, you're there to facilitate the conversation, not necessarily to have all the answers. It's great, if you see things, to speak on that. But you're not always going to see the things, and especially early on, you know, as, as you get to do it more and more, you see the patterns of it all. But be there to facilitate the conversation. And that takes a lot of pressure because my TAs, when they step in with me, sometimes I kind of throw them into the deep end. It's like, okay, this next, this next scene, you're going to leave notes on it. And they're like, oh, gosh, what am I going to, am I going to have what to say? It's like, don't worry about having what to say. Worry about having her to start. And then I think that creates not only a, a, a better grasp of how to address the scene, but also creates a, different, a better environment for the improvisers. Because this, this is a collaborative art form. We want them to be collaborative, even in the analysis of, well, what just happened? What worked? What can we learn about it for next time? Because it's always about next time. Right? It's never a bad scene. Sometimes we get caught up with like, oh, well, that thing, should I point out that thing? Well, only if it helps them in the next time they get up there to improvise. When you're, what do you, for vetting your teachers currently, what are the standards? Do they get to come to you and say, hey, I may want to be a teacher, and then you're like, hey, go do this? Or um, do you guys have a formal process before you even start the training of them? They, they talk to me, and my first question is, okay, what's your end? Because there's some people that come to me and they want to be considered for teaching at the school, which is fine. But, uh, but if they do want to become a teacher, well, that's a very specific track that I'm going to set them on. There are other people that are like, I just want to better understand improv and I want to do it from this side of it. It's like, oh, okay. so that's always the first thing. And as far as the vetting, um, they usually... We want to make sure that they're graduates of the program just because they understand the overall arc of what we're doing. And then they get to see how all the different classes come together. And then they usually start one-on-one. Our school is structured in that uh, every level is a different teacher. I know other schools have teachers teach different levels based on schedule and all that stuff. For me, it was very important that each teacher gets a level that they make their own because the thing that unifies all the levels for us is there isn't one way to do it. And so you want to make sure you hear from different voices. And so the TAs also get the benefit of look at the way this person approaches this versus the way this teacher approaches it. And it's very helpful. Um, and then they all go through, you know, they have to stay with me at some point. 
Okay. And then do you, um, to, to continue working with them on their skills and stuff. So you'll have them TA and then afterwards, are you having a conversation with them about like their approach to it and then letting them open up to questions of like, Hey, I was struggling with this and that kind of thing. Yeah. I usually say, okay, so where did you have any difficulties today? Uh, any confusion, things that I led, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also just kind of, I believe in treating them as my peer just so that they start dealing with that slide. You know, so they start uh, working some muscles. It's like, okay, let's talk about what happened today. Um, what did you notice, right? And uh, et cetera, et cetera. Not in a way that's like testing them of like, so what did you notice? Did you see what I saw? It's like, no, let's talk about it because... I actually get a lot of benefit from having a TA just because I have so many thoughts and it helps me sort it out. So um, I just put them in that position, you know, and see how they do. And early on, on the first day when I sit with them before the first class, I tell them, listen, um, a big part of being a TA is letting yourself fuck it up. You're going to fuck it up. I'm still fucked As a teacher, I still fuck it up. I, I embrace it's going to be part of the process. Um, and in doing so, we create an environment for our students where they're allowed to fuck it up. If we're allowed to fuck it up, they're allowed to fuck it up more, and they need to fuck it up. They need to take those risks, and we need to take those risks. So let's fuck it up together. Um, so I try to create that idea that even though I have more experience, we're, we're operating in the same level right now. And then to monitor the ongoing progress of them, are you doing a student evaluations after every class kind of thing? I'll tell you, I used to, um, but my bandwidth is stretched so thin that I have, it's one of the things that's dropped. So students don't do evaluations anymore on any of the teachers or just like newer teachers? Um, the, the teachers kind of operate, are, are in charge of their own feedback that they want. So our our 101 teacher, Joe, she's very adamant about getting feedback, which is great. I mean, and that's probably where it's most helpful. You know, people's first experience of the theater, chances are by 201 or 301 they get to me. I mean, they're both. Yeah, I'm so busy with the, like, doing and all that stuff that sometimes I don't have enough bandwidth to monitor. And I wish I had it. I wish I could. We are so small still that I've been very hit or miss about doing it. So, like, I'll do it, and then I'll go a few rounds of classes and not do it. Then I'm like, oh, I need to check back in and do this. Um, but I also, because we are so small and because the um, retention rate is so high, I'm like, but I kind of know. <laughs> I mean, I do. I also remember, so we did a few semesters in a row, like six or seven semesters, which like spans for a year and a half. Each each semester is eight weeks long. I, I've gotten some good feedback from him that's helped shape the curriculum. Recent, the complete lesson plans of two levels, I was like, oh yeah, it should probably have always been this way. It's like, why did it take us that long to figure that out? But we were back that uh, going from my level to the next level was a very jarring feeling um, so we switched it to a, because that's where they start to learn the herald 
So my my they're they're doing montage. They're learning ensemble work. They're lear- learning group scenes. They're learning group edits. Um, in four hundred one, they were going into Herald, which felt like too much of a ramp up to people. It's like okay, well let's give them one more level instead, um, and that's been a huge help. So there are big things like that that we still get feedback on. I like the I like the idea of saying as a teacher we're gonna fuck up. It's gonna happen. We're human. We're constantly learning. When you find yourself in that moment of like, ooh, I think I I think I just fucked that up. Um, how do you facilitate that conversation with your students? It depends on the the size of the fuck up. There are times in the middle of a rehearsal where nothing it's not working. So like I've, I'm taking them through some exercises that I've used before that have usually gotten positive results. But there's something about this group very different. They're getting thinking. I just recently had this happen, and I had to throw out the lesson plan. But it was definitely, and I could see them feeling bad about it. It's like, ugh, why are we not having any success today? And so, especially in those moments, it's like, no, put the spotlight on me. This is this is my job. This is what I'm here for. You know, so. I'll say, listen, guys, I'm trying stuff and none of it's working. I clearly need to rethink this. Let's take a break. In about 10 minutes, we're going to try something completely different. It's on me. I'm giving you the wrong stuff today that I thought, but every group is different, right? Um, Gary Schwartz often talks about, yeah, if you're not learning from your students, you're not teaching. So what do you what do you think at the heart of it then it means to be a teacher for in improv? Being a teacher to me is different than being a director or being a coach. Definitely. Director is particular vision, particular end goal. Teacher there isn't. And I was walking by a martial arts studio and you know, it was a storefront, big glass windows you could look in. And there was this one guy there. Uh, in the studio at the time. And he was practicing his moves. Right? And he was wearing a black belt. But he looked so goddamn awkward. How is this guy? He's like sparring, you know, he's going through, and it just looked weird. It looked awkward. And so, once again, because I was doing the artist way, the artist way in my brain was saying, well, you have to go ask. So I went in and talked to one of the teachers, not for the guys, but I, but I was very honest with the teacher. He was like, how does one advance through the belts? Because I'm watching this guy, he's a black belt, and he doesn't move the way I would have expected a black belt to move. And the guy said, you achieve the next belt when you achieve a better version of yourself. And each person is their own standard. So that gentleman surpassed the, his own standard of himself enough times to achieve a black belt. Now. I wouldn't put it in a ring with any other black belt. That's not the way. He's achieved the black belt. And that made perfect sense to me. And I felt like improv is the same way. We're just constantly achieving a better version of ourselves based on our own standard. And there are some people that, that go through, we have six levels, that go through six levels with no intention of being performers we recognize that and that's fine sometimes it's very easy to like hear them up towards being a performer um and some of them 
aren't the best performers, but they have enough of a grasp and they're taking the chances and they're stepping so far outside of themselves, their own comfort zones, that they move up to the next level. But we just make a note. Each people need different things. So I feel like that's our job as teachers, to guide them to the next version of themselves. Because we're we're guiding their instincts. That's what I'm proud of instincts. And that's hard. <laughs> when you say you make a note, um, are you making a note for yourself? Or are you guys physically making notes to one another as they move from one class? Like, hey, heads up, you know, um, Sheila is still struggling with X, Y, or Z. Um, do you guys have those con- conversations? Yeah, we pass on little evaluations to each other. It's a, um, this group is very thinky. They, they're going to need to be pushed early on, right away, and then they do fine. Or this group is strong, but they, they start off strong, but they lose stamina easily. Or uh, watch for this person. This person is going to whatever behavior. Oh, this person deflects a lot with joking around in class, so sometimes got to crack up a whip on him uh, in order for him to, like, just jump more into the work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's and this is one of the areas that the TAs really help because the TAs start level one and they move forward with the group each level. So they're also helpful in, in that where I tell the TA, listen, I'm going to need you to help bridge what they just learned in their last level to this one. And then also help make me aware of any, if, if there are any red flags that go up of like, oh, this person tends to do this a lot to let me know. That um, that's actually great. It's nice to have another pair of eyes to to see that. With that in mind, then, do you guys put in metrics into your program, or is it um, this is subjective and so everybody passes? It's it's up to the discretion of the teacher. I empower the teachers to make that call. Uh, but another thing that we do is. The last, so we're an eight-week program. They do eight classes. In that eight week, they get uh, the class gets a sneak peek of what awaits them in the next level, what the ideas are, the themes. But the teacher also looks and goes, gets a sense of the students that they're going to get. And then it helps me because sometimes I'm on the fence with whether someone passes. We don't automatically graduate everyone. Level one, everybody graduates. Because it's a it's a big deal, right? But, but after that, once they've shown, okay, once you signed up for level two, you're showing a certain level of devotion and seriousness to this. So we're going to be serious as well. We're not going to do you any favors by graduating you if you're not ready. So there is that moment where I get to confer with the 401 teacher at the end of my 301 class of like, watch this person. I'm not sure if they're ready, but let's see. But the thing is, there are certain challenges. Each person is different. And there are people that didn't do my 301 class, but I can recognize the things that are going to help them are in 401. Because we do a montage, which is more open-ended, more organic. 401, we start going into certain structures. And I, there are certain people that it's like, okay, they, they struggled with my class. 
But I think the thing that's going to help them through some of those lessons is some of the structure level. And then another factor is, well, this group has really bonded well. And if I leave this one person back, that's going to have a negative impact on the group. And they, they like playing with that person, so I shouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. So there are all these things that balance uh, out as far as the evaluation as to whether they're ready to move on for the next set of challenges or not. When you guys, when you do decide that someone's not going to move on, um, I think it's really helpful for people to hear how to have that conversation. And are they getting sort of a warning? Like, do you do a midpoint check-in with the students of like, here's what's going on. I don't know. Or is it, okay, you're not, we can't do it. I encourage my teachers to have conversations often throughout and to help them keep track of what conversations have been had. Um, I can, in my class, there's one class that's devoted to checking in with the students, where I lead them through a conversation of, okay, I need you to self-evaluate yourselves, where you're at in I want you to look at all your strengths, one challenge, and that's usually like, this tent pole for their progression. So yeah, I mean, I've gotten a little bit of a nickname, uh, Hammer of Improv, because I'm very blunt and direct. And, um, which people appreciate, there are people that come to me specifically for that. And I used to feel, uh, I want people thinking of me as a hammer of undo that in the first day and show how much of a teddy bear I am. But I am. Uh, but I've relaxed about it and kind of, you know, I've embraced it full force. And my thought now is, yeah, you need a hammer to forge steel. And that's the, that's the point of it all. So. so when you do go to hold that person back, um, what's that conversation like? Because I know, especially for new teachers, anytime, you know, especially with, I find, I find with improv, because we're teaching collaboration and acceptance and being the best version of yourself. But now I'm going to tell you why you're not a good person. <laughs> you know, And it's not that you're not a good person, but it can feel like now I'm going to, it can feel that way when you're delivering that message. So, um, so I think that's a, probably a hard conversation for a lot of young improv teachers to have. So it, it, I think it's helpful um, to hear how you have that conversation. With kindness. I mean, and so even in those situations where they are acting up and all that stuff, and we recently had a student we had to tell not to come back, uh, all that stuff. Um, but I'm very much of the mind that we're not doing anybody any favors by throwing them into something where they're not going to succeed, right? And so it's very much from that of, like, we want you to succeed, and this is what we think strongly you need in order to succeed. And until you grab a hold of these challenges, I don't want to throw you into the next batch of them. And if I find someone who's being disruptive in my class... I usually pull them aside and I say, listen, you're working way too hard to be funny right now. It could be a lot easier for you. Let me show you how. Right? You know, because ultimately you got to believe 
hey, they forked over that money. They're coming every week. They have a certain amount of investment in this. Even if they're not showing it, deep down they've got to. Otherwise, you know, why? Why are they coming back? Why are they, why are they spending all this money that they could get to something else? So I have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they do want to learn. That's why they're in the class. And so I'm very upfront uh, about it. And I try to have the conversation aside unless it's a situation where I need the rest of the class to know I'm on top of this. If I have something being inappropriate in what they're doing, especially you know misogynistic, I've, I've got a no-tolerance policy for that, and I need the rest of the class to know, hey, this is my policy on it, and I'm going to be as nice as I can, as kind as I can, while making an example of this person. But at that point, I have to. I have to make an example. For policies such as that, do you then, like, at the very beginning of a new, when a new cycle starts, go over, like, here's what I won't tolerate? Dot, 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 dot. So that when you do stop a scene or something's going on, you can be like, hey, remember when we talked about these policies? This is what I was talking about. No. I don't I don't believe in preemptively having conversations like that. Why? A, I've never thought about it. And B, I trust myself in the moment to take care of it. And I try to create a safe, uncensored environment. Now, sometimes things will come up that push against that safety, but I trust in being able to turn it around, you know? So I've been doing this long enough that I trust myself enough that I can pass on the trust to them that they'll be fine. Do you think you just always, because, I mean, it takes time to also maybe build your... And maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I, mean, I'm, I could just be insane. Uh, but I feel like sometimes it takes a little bit to build trust in ourselves as teachers. I know where I am now, uh, just as easy as like two or three years ago, like with just opening the theater itself, how much more I trust myself to stop something, right? Um, do you think that always came easy for you? No. Uh, especially when I started teaching improv to kids and the first high school students was in New York and it's like boy they love doing drug deal scenes or uh, <laughs> for some reason they love doing drug deal scenes and none of them were druggies you know it was just this heightened prime time television content kind of thing of like going there again and again and again um and in high school classes, the thing that I would, I had two rules at the start of a high school class. Everything is 100% correct. That's first of all. Everything, we, and we want to aspire for everything to be 100% original. So if everything is 100% correct, but you have this content that comes in, like a drug deal scene or sexually charged scene. I get to fall back on that second rule of like, okay, here's what worked about that scene. Now, moving forward, if everything's 100% original, we're not going to do another drug deal scene. Let's transfer 
to other types of scenes, other types of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Or if it's the sexually charged scene of like parsing it away from the content. So it's not the fact that it was sexually charged that made the scene work. There was something else. And I want you to succeed at that again, but in a completely different scene. So for high school students, yeah, I would have rules like that. But even just those two. That might be even helpful, though, for somebody who just really is at a loss of what, you know. There's so much. I mean, I think your book is, is it like the, there might be, a, I've come across one other book recently that's on teaching improv, but there's so few of that out there. So it, it can be hard for a new teacher, unless they're in a really rich improv environment, to find their voice and find their footing and and make make these people have an experience that everybody's hoping that they have. And that's, I wrote the book specifically for the people who are in the smaller markets that don't have as much access to classes and different teachers and different voices. You know, people in Chicago or New York or L.A. are not going to need to buy my book as much. You know, people in whatever small cities, uh, Des Moines uh, or, you know, Sioux Falls or whatever, uh, are going to need to. Yeah, because you need, you need people to steal from, steal ideas from, until you've developed your own ideas. You're going to pick and choose from what you've learned. And the wider the variety, the better a head start you're going to get for that. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. Um, it's not. It's a problem for players and a problem for teachers of like, you only have this small subset of people to watch, so it's hard to even grow as a performer sometimes because you don't even know that there's so much out there unless you're you have the ability or the drive to get out of and go to festivals and other markets. But especially for a teacher, because if you've been exposed to two teachers, <laughs> it can be an issue. Um, so with that in mind, do you have a certain approach to developing a curriculum when you go to develop one? I work backward. What's the end goal? What's the takeaway? There's always that takeaway that you want, whether it's at the end of a level or, oh, I got hired to do this corporate gig or, oh, I'm going to teach a two-hour class in the festival. You know, all of those are different beasts, but it's all working towards one thing. I'm never one of those guys of like, let's take you through the foundations of stuff, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's always about, well, what am I trying, what are we trying to achieve? And then what foundations are going to fit that, right? I don't always need to lead a yes and, you know, you know, exercise or whatever. There are other things that might be necessary. It's strange. And that's strange to say, right? Oh, an improv, what's an improv class without a yes and exercise? Well, there are lots of different ways in. Uh, do you, are your classrooms pretty much the typical improv setup of uh, you come in, everyone kind of talks a little bit, then we go into warm-up, then we go into some drills, then we go into some exercises that maybe lead to scene work and or the form at the end of class that we're working on? Or do you find... Or have you developed a different approach that you find just works better for you? Uh, for my 301 class, and this is very specific to we're six-level curriculum. It's that the halfway mark, right? One of my is I want to get people to really develop their own vocabulary 
whenever we start a class, we start with what was our takeaways, getting them to speak on it. Um, and it's a very much, no, I don't want you to take your notebooks out and look at your notes. I want what resonated for you. What, what stuck with you as far as like particular challenges or the particularly helpful things? Because that also helps me as a teacher of like, okay, this, this stuff that we focused on fell to the wayside. Why is that? Whereas this really speaks to the group. Well, that's going to help lead me to lead them to more success. If I know, oh, okay, those emotional exercises that we did or those physical exercises that we did really helped them, et cetera, et cetera. But also it gets them to know how to speak about their improv in a way that's helpful to them as opposed to, well, I remember that scene horribly, right, or whatever. I want them to recognize, okay, what worked for you? What, what, what pushed against you? Right. And so we start with that. And that takes about 15 minutes at the top of the class to kind of do that. And it's also very much uh, I want everybody to speak. And it's not a quiz. It's not us trying to recall everything we did last week. It's everyone speaking from their own personal experience. So if you're in my class and someone else said the same thing you were going to say, I still want you to say it. I need to hear you say it. It's to collectively remember. Right. It's us grabbing hold of what resonated for us so we can carry that into today's class. And then I will do some warm-ups. I usually stop and start warm-ups because one of the things that I look at is the tactics that we use to succeed at warm-ups, right? Um, there are certain warm-ups where people are just too much about getting the warm-up right and I'd rather they fuck up the warm-up and see how easily they course correct than learn how to do bunny bunny correctly. No, I'm making faces which the listener can't see because this literally happened about a week. So uh, we all get together before a show and I'm very much, because we're such a small community that um, doesn't matter who's performing, everybody warms up together, just the way our shows are stacked, we can do that. And um, one of our players, one of the coaches of the team starts off um, a warm-up, just a simple whatever, and someone wasn't sure if they, he wanted him to clap or point. So they're like, what do you want me to do? And I was sitting there, I'm like, yeah, just do it. So then I just started pointing at one person, started clapping at another person. But they all, I got, I got frustrated and then I had to check myself because that's on me because they all stopped because they didn't know which rule to follow and I, I was like and in my and I got frustrated so I was like especially with this group because at this point they're not students anymore they're players at this at this point they should be able to be like oh we're making up a new exercise this is going to be fun let's see what happens not there, I'm going to break a rule. So, right, so just being able to gauge that tactic. So I let it go because they have whatever. But then I went to the coaches afterwards, and I said, for the next several weeks, you better work with them on adapting under the moment to ever-changing circumstances. Or, in other words, improv. I tell my, my students, listen, the rules of the game are the ones that we start with. We're starting the game with the rules. At a certain point, the rules are going to stop serving us. We're not there to serve a rule, right? If we're serving rules, we're not playing. If the rules are serving us, then we're playing. And so if you have that instinct to push against those rules, to break the rules, create a new rule, 
that's where you're playing, right? The only rule that you can't break is whatever keeps the game going, that's what you should do. That's the only rule, to keep the game going, right? Everything else, yeah, worst comes to worst, we create a new exercise. By all means, do that. I, especially I've, after 26 years of improv, I'm looking to be surprised. I've seen this being exercised thousands of times at this point. <laughs> I want to be surprised. I make that invitation to them. It's like, please surprise me with this. I always try to look at when a bad behavior or bad habit happens, what is it serving them, right? And that one, most times it's serving this politeness, which I can't stand. I, I try to kill politeness and improv because politeness is opposite to initiative for me. And initiative is the most important characteristic for an improviser to have. So if you're being polite, you're, you're nullifying your most important characteristic. But they're worried about being bad improvisers in not letting a scene save itself. Uh, that's they, they've got the, the that's the thing that I find I have to do a lot as a teacher to dispel certain myths and give them permission to do things that they wouldn't do. And whenever you ask a, a group of people of like, okay, how many of you wished that scene were cut shorter? Like most, if not all, the hands go up and go, okay, so look at that. You had the right instinct, but you didn't trust it. And imagine the relief you would have felt if you were in that scene and someone cut it. Why are you denying these other people that same relief? <laughs> you know, <laughs> by all means, give them that gift. You know how much you would have appreciated it. You know how much they would appreciate it, right? And then, so now we're taking this thing that's usually thought of like, oh, I'm not being supportive, I'm not being a good improviser, I'm not letting things happen, to, oh, this is the way that I'm supporting by, by editing where I think it needs to be edited, right? Um, so I try to shift, to recalibrate their thinking in that way. Um, but there might be other psychology at play, but that's, that's the most common thought. It's like them being polite of like, no, they want a chance to succeed on their own. And it's like, no, they've given up on succeeding on their own. And the fucking see. So uh, one of our coaches came to me about something else and they're like, you know, I have a player who's constantly doing um, this kind of thing. So in that scene, where I was blah, 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 and so-and-so was blah, blah, blah. What do I do when blah, blah, blah does this? In other words, he fucked, like, they're trying to say, he fucked it up, and I wasn't happy. And we go back and forth, because I'm like, well, I, at this point, you can say to that person, so you're trying to throw so-and-so under the bus, so let's have that conversation <laughs> first. Well... The throwing him under the bus conversation. I don't have that. Um, one thing that I stress with my students is improv goes off the rails, not because of a failure of execution, but because of a failure of expectation. Who was the expectation on? You. You put this thing out to your partner, and then lo and behold, they didn't go 
the direction you thought they were going to. That's a failure of expectation on you, not a failure of execution on them. That's them interpreting what you're putting out there and trying to use the gift just in a way that you didn't expect. But that's the way improv's supposed to be. It's supposed to be unexpected. And if you can't see where it's going, that's just showing you how unique the situation you are in right now is. And that's what you want. You want every scene to be a... If we're just rehashing the same things over and over again, well, why the fuck are we doing it? It's like... Just do one set, and then that's it. You never need to do it again. You've done them all, right? I don't want to point otherwise, I'm, because then I'm not interested in doing it. So that's the way, yeah. But it's like, if, if we recognize that it's a failure of expectation, there is no throwing anyone under the bus anymore. I love this interpretation thing, because one of the things they can do is like, well, what I saw was that so-and-so threw out the interpretation or the idea of this, and that's what the reality then became. So... I need you to play into that more. Right. And that's the other thing. If there was an idea that the other person didn't understand, why didn't you fight for that idea through your character? Why didn't you reemphasize what was important about that idea? Right? As opposed to, oh, well, they don't understand it. Throw your hands up in the middle of the scene and that's it. Right? If your character really about that, I want to see you really about that. That's why um, my teaching is very much, and the institution, theater's teaching, I try to push expression over communication. A lot of schools will preach communication, they'll preach listening, and things like that. But the issue that I've had with that is that the students worry too much about the other side of the conversation, the side that they have no control over. And then, as a result, they don't invest enough in their side of the conversation, their own expression. And if they express strongly enough, it will be listened to and understood on the other side. And then we don't have to work on listening. So many students come to me wanting to work on their listen, are listening. Just learn to listen more particularly. Because when they say listening, they're talking about hearing everything and understanding everything. That's the thing they're worried about. And my thought is, anything that goes wrong, just blame it on the character. It's not you that made that mistake, it's the character. Right, yeah, and we could be saying it different ways, and it's maybe the 15th way that you say it, they'll, they'll hear it, uh, and run with it, or, or it's like, no, the millionth and first time, that's when it finally clicks. You know, you never know stars are gonna align. Because like I said, it's all instinct, there's psychology. Sometimes we're fighting against things that have um, been uh, a part of how they've thought for their entire life. So if I have a 40-year-old student that has un operated under certain ideas of how one communicates or expresses themselves for that 40 years, you know, there's only so much I'm going to chip away on that, <laughs> uh, especially if there are other factors in their life that help support that. That guy who's being disruptive in my class and trying to be funny all the time, you know, he might be supported in his office environment as he's the funny one. And that's why I thought, oh, you know, I should sign up for an improv class. I'm naturally funny. Everybody at the office tells me so. It's like, well, I can't. There's only so much I can combat against all that influence. Do you think that there's a thing uh, such as a difficult student or do you find that if a student is difficult, it's a failure of the teacher? It's only a failure on me if I stop trying. If I give up on that, then it's a failure on me. If I keep trying, 
enough failing. There are difficult students, sure. There are different, every student is a different level of difficulty, right? You know, you can lead a horse to water and yada, 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 experienced. What's, what's going on with this person and my different things and see, see what happens. Because here's the other thing that has shifted in my teaching over the last few trying to get people to do good improv and do improv where they light up. I'm looking, up, I'm looking for those light up moments as opposed to those obviously good improv moments, right? Because in trying to make them a better improviser, I need to know what, what makes their brain light up, that their particular wiring, what's their... It's like this person might be, oh, this person likes to play weird. They like to play outrageous characters and all that stuff. I really saw it there. But they're not giving themselves permission to do it all the time. Or they're worried about how weird they get, whether people will go along with their weird. I've had a lot of those students. Or, oh, this person really likes to play grounded, real stuff. But they don't feel like they have permission to do that as often as they would like to. Right? So I look for those light-up moments because I think that's the access point to what makes their improv. And so... Um, a for me, a difficult student is the one where it's like, okay, I'm trying different things, but they still can't find that light-up thing. Have you ever had to ask a student to, not that you're not just going to pass them, but just to leave class? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because they've had a negative, they were creating a negative environment that was getting in the way of everybody else playing. If they're doing that, if they're struggling and they're, you know, if they're doing bad scenes and stuff and all that stuff, you know, that. That's understandable. If they're not trying at all, and I've had students that are not trying, and it's like, oh, boy, my, my whip, the crack of my whip is especially loud on that one. Um, Dave Rosowski has a great line that he says that I've borrowed, where he says, I'm not yelling at you, I'm yelling with you, you just haven't started yelling yet. And I love it. It's like, okay, I'm going to crack the whip really loud because I need to speak louder than the voices in your head that are telling you you can't do this. Uh, so that's a level of difficulty where, you know, I've been known to, like, get really intense, uh, sometimes loud. But people that are outwardly create negative environment for other people, that, like, I can't abide by that. Like, I need to shut that down. But like I said, I will have that aside, and I'll try to give them the benefit of the doubt that they don't know what they're doing, the world that they're creating, and try to help them. Um, but like I said, God knows what's fueling that methodology for them, what kind of work they've come from, what kind of uh, support they've had for this way of thinking, et cetera, et cetera. I've, I've seen racists be converted. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, I feel like that's the pinnacle of a philosophy that's hard to turn, that I've turned. And so I've got to believe that everybody has a way to be brought to a certain level of understanding that will make them better and make it better for all, all those around them. I have to believe that. Mark Lott said about every student of his. He said, you are pure potential. He said that to every student. And A, that's a very Martin thing. But B, that's a wonderful 
wonderfully beautiful thing that I think every teacher should think about their students, that every one of them is pure potential. And then how do we unlock that potential? I had a student recently um, who just, she just looks so miserable when she's doing this, right? And I was talking to, uh, one of our players sat in on class and, and I was talking to her because she's interested in maybe teaching and stuff. I'm like, come sit in some classes to see if you're really kind of interested, whatever, before I even start TAing you and all that stuff. And I said to her, you know, I said, I don't know how to, I've been trying all these different things. And I said, do you see how like miserable she is and how much she just doesn't seem to like it and want to be here? She goes, that's not it, Lauren. She doesn't like herself. And I was like, oh, like she, she, I was like, when she said that, and then my whole like approach to her shifts. Cause I'm like, uh, because now I'm heartbroken for her, right? Oh, now you just need to have your confidence built up and you need to know that your voice is safe here and that you can be heard. I can work on like no problem there, right? Like, um, so I was just really glad that that person said that because I was just like oh yeah that that's exactly that's exactly what it is and and because of that she is pure potential she just has to, she has to believe that um yeah meanwhile I want to get into the habit of like psychoanalyzing all of our students and what my, it's, a fine, it's a fine line to walk will you stop scenes though like if certain thresholds are crossed great and are, do you facilitate that conversation with the students one of the hardest skills i think for anyone who teaches to learn is that muscle of when to let it ride and when to shut it down right because once again it's that instinct you want to give them enough room for them to develop and then to experiment for them to try things but and I think, once again, it's like you see the patterns. And I know, okay, in the first minutes, the commitment has been really low. The idea that it's suddenly going to pick up, the ch- I know what the chances are, are of that. Certain, certain improvisers, like, they need so much time before they, they, they find the thing to grasp onto or whatever, what, it, what their patterns are in the but it's a really hard muscle. And once again, we feel similarly to the improvisers who feel bad about editing. You know, sometimes it's hard to shut down, but I want them to feel And so the energy is just dropping, like the chances of their success is dwindling. And so stopping them, giving them something to focus on, and then restarting the scene or jumping back into the scene, if it's possible, it depends on... You know, sometimes you can very be very surgical and go, okay, pause. I want you to each think about what's the most important thing for your character right now. Great, jump back now. You know, and you know, if I'm able to do that, great. But other times it's like, okay, we need to talk about what's going on. Do we recognize that this is happening? Because sometimes you're not even sure what they're aware of. Are they aware that they've made twelve offers and haven't stuck with any? you know, of how they're negotiating the scene right now, negotiating what the scene's about, right? In which case, okay, I need to give them the, I need to empower them to course correct that 
if they recognize that, it's like, okay, so what, what are the tools that are going to help you get out of that? But yeah, I will definitely stop a scene or a set of like, you know, because like I said, 301, we're all about learning a montage, but it's rare in 301 that I ever have them do it. They, at the end of the 301, that's a 25 minute showcase, but it's rare I ever have them do a 25 minute montage in the course of a class. Usually I go to 15 minutes. I feel if they can do a strong 15, they can do a strong 25. It's not that much different. But if they get the reps in, they can learn more from, you know, what's happening. You know, how is, the, how is this set shaping up? And what does it need in order to go a full 25? Um, so, yeah, I most definitely shut it down. If they're not having fun, what's the point of it? What kind of advice do you have for someone who'd like to be a teacher or is thinking about being a teacher? Follow as many people as you can. Uh, steal as much as you can from those that follow. Um, if you don't have that option, um, coach for free wherever you can uh, to give yourself the permission to fuck it up through going through the paces, you know, until you learn some of the muscles. The Malcolm Gladwell thing of 10,000 hours, I don't think it takes 10,000 hours. But it's like the more improv you see through an analytical eye, not just from, well, I've been watching improv for the last three years and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No, with an analytical eye, the more you'll see certain patterns, the more you'll recognize certain things, um, insights of your own that would help other people. So I think that's, that's a helpful thing. Do it for free as much as possible. Give yourself that permission to fuck it up. Where can people find you? Yesand.com. So I've recently reformatted yesand.com where it's an aggregator of all a lot of improv sites. Uh, and actually, I want your permission to put your podcast in the aggregator. So when you put a new episode, it'll show up. Because right now, when I started yesand.com in 99, there was nothing like it. And so it's like it was a major resource. But now there are resources everywhere. But yesand.com still gets clicks. And it's probably because people are Googling yesand. So, you know, they're, chances are they're newbies, newly addicted to improv, and they just feed. So it's like, oh, well, let me create an aggregator where it's like you just connect them to these other resources. Um, and I have my own blog on that. Web page, and I can also be reached through that. 